0: What would you do if you discovered a plane crash? Would your answer be different if the plane you found contained 6,000 pounds of marijuana? In 1977, some people had to make that decision. My name is Jeff Vargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Welcome to Episode 4 of the High Adventure Podcast, where we continue to drill down into the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. If you're new to us, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes to help you get up to speed to where we are in the story. In this episode, we're going to discuss the aftermath of the crash and the abandoning of the site by the government and the discovery by the rock climbing community and others as the stealth salvaging of the plane began. I want to thank you all who are now following us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I appreciate all the messages and emails you've sent about the show. It's been fun to watch this podcast grow and to see where some of our listeners actually are. According to the stats, most of our listeners are here in the United States, which is not really a surprise, but the surprise to me was to learn that New Zealand is second on the list of most listeners. France is number three, followed by Australia and the UK. I really appreciate that you're telling your friends and you're sharing these episodes around the world. I received a few questions this week, and I thought I would answer them right here as several of them were the same. And the question seems to be is, why is each episode so short? Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts of varying lengths, and some are two hours and some are 30 minutes. My goal with this podcast is to offer an episode that you can easily get through in one brief sitting or maybe even a short car ride. I've done one and two hour podcasts in the past, and in some formats that works. But in this format, I don't want an episode to be listened to in small segments. I want you to be able to sit down and in a short amount of time get the complete episode. In our last episode, we discussed the finding of the plane by Ron Likens and his friends and the plans that were set in motion by the Rangers and the Park Service to find the plane and salvage the cargo and how quickly the FAA and NTSB and the DEA and the U.S. Customs all got involved. Remember, John Glisky had been under surveillance by the DEA and U.S. Customs for a few years, and when the crash was identified as Glisky's plane, the DEA and Customs wanted their shot at the cargo, and they wanted the credit for the smuggler's haul. We've all seen pictures of these types of busts where the agents and their bosses are standing next to huge piles of drugs and telling us we are now safer because they've taken this stuff off the streets. The Park Service's law enforcement division, along with the DEA and U.S. Customs, salvaged and cataloged and ultimately removed more than 2,000 pounds of weed via their helicopters. But this was before the storm came in and forced them to halt the operations. But not before they did what they could to search for John Glisky and Jeff Nelson, who'd been piloting the plane. The Park Service sent divers to try to find the pilots, but high-altitude diving in frigid temperatures is rough. The divers had slipped through these manhole-sized openings that had been cut with chainsaws. The visibility was less than two feet, and the water was murky and clouded with jet fuel, oil, and marijuana that had been separated from those broken bundles and was floating under the ice. Maneuvering through the dark and jagged metal of the shredded plane was like swimming through a maze of razor blades. The conditions ultimately made it impossible to find a safe entry to the fuselage or the cockpit. So the plan was to return in the spring after the lake had thawed and recover the plane and the remaining cargo. Back in the valley, the government needed a place to store this two tons of marijuana it just salvaged. Looking around, there wasn't a lot of open space or offices for this stuff. So, ironically, they decided to store it in a jail cell in Yosemite's jail. And yes, Yosemite has a jail and a courtroom. Don't forget, when you're in Yosemite, you are under federal law. Even if you do something that's legal in California, it may be illegal under federal law, and you can be prosecuted under those federal statutes. For instance, though marijuana is legal in California, within the boundaries of Yosemite National Park, marijuana is still considered a Schedule I drug, and possession of any amount of marijuana is a felony, which means if convicted, you could go to federal prison. In 1977, the Yosemite Valley Jail was upstairs in the firehouse building. Law enforcement had taken half of the jail and began stacking the salvaged marijuana in one of the cells. According to an employee of the law enforcement office at the time, the marijuana came in like giant ice cubes of wheat. The leafy bales were frozen solid. Saturated by water and jet fuel, the bales soon began to thaw out. The melting bales were stacked halfway to the ceiling and the runoff was substantial. The drains in the cell became clogged with stems and plant material The stinking water created by the thaw of the frozen weed and jet fuel fanned its way through the floor and was dripping down on the dispatcher's desk on the floor below. Finally, Fire Chief Don Cross stormed up to the jail and told the law enforcement group, and I quote, You gotta get this stuff out of here. The rangers were already exhausted from moving the marijuana once upstairs to the jail Now they're packing up the soggy contraband and they moved it to a large walk-in freezer that was normally used to hold block ice that they sold to tourists. When we return from this short break, we'll look at how the climbers and the others in the valley learned about the plane crash and exactly what was on that plane, and then how they would go about their own salvage operation. I assume you're listening to this podcast because you enjoy a good adventure story. Along with the High Adventure podcast, Accidental Productions has produced a number of films in the web series El Cap Bridge, which features discussions with famous and not so famous climbers that hang out in what's called the center of the climbing universe. Our feature film, Assault on El Capitan, takes you up on the second ascent of Wings of Steel with legendary big wall climber Amit McNeely as he tries to solve the mystery of the most controversial climb in Yosemite history, the climate involved lies and deception and even attempted murder. The Sultan El Capitan is available on streaming services and platforms everywhere and is free on Amazon Prime. Now back to our story. Welcome back. It was a blizzard on February 4th, 1977 that forced the five governmental agencies to pack up their equipment and the 2,000 pounds of salvaged weed and abandon that crash site. Pam Glisky was back home in Seattle, but in a state of limbo. She now knew it was her husband's plane that went down in Yosemite. She had told the DEA everything she knew about John's business, but the DEA had already known most of what she had to say. But now, all of a sudden, information from the government was scarce. Pam became increasingly cautious and worried about her own safety and her own freedom. Her concerns did seem valid. She'd reported to the DEA what her husband was up to, and now she wondered if she would be implicated in the crime of smuggling. John was probably dead, though she'd always held out hope. After all, they'd not found a body. But if the government wasn't interested in her... Would the Motomagic Syndicate be interested? That's a pretty worrisome thought in itself. She had pointed a pretty direct spotlight on that operation. How do you go through life looking over both shoulders? Pam was going to learn how. This is the part of the story where the timelines are not linear. Several things were happening simultaneously, but were unrelated to each other. But these events eventually coalesced onto the shores of Lower Merced Pass Lake. You see, Pam had called a friend who was a lawyer, and he'd acted as John's lawyer in the past. The lawyer was no fan of John's. He was an ex-boyfriend of Pam, so that, I'm sure, tainted his opinion of the otherwise popular John Glisky. Everybody liked John, but this lawyer, for some reason, he was not a fan. But he agreed to do what Pam had asked. The lawyer agreed to travel to Yosemite Valley to sniff around and try to find out anything he could about what was happening with the salvage, The search for John, what was happening to the weed, and what the DEA might be up to. So the lawyer flew down from Seattle down to the San Francisco Bay Area, and he rented a car and drove the four-hour southeast to Yosemite. Always careful and now looking over his shoulder, the lawyer got a room at a hotel just outside the park. He was not about to have a record of his visit anywhere inside Yosemite. Hanging around the restaurants and bars and in Camp 4, the lawyer finally got what he was looking for. After overhearing a conversation that a DEA agent was having in the bar one night, the lawyer was able to use that intel and, through conversations with locals around Camp 4, was able to put the pieces of the situation together. The lawyer put together that the fuselage was mostly intact but beneath the ice of the frozen lake, along with the bodies of the pilots and a lot of weed. Before going back to Seattle to tell Pam what he'd learned... He wandered into Camp 4 and told a couple climbers sitting around a campfire about a magic place where marijuana floated up on shore. And the best part was that it was only a 12-mile hike to get there. Around this same time, a couple of young women were standing around a ranger's car one afternoon when they heard an announcement that the crash site was being abandoned. As you can imagine, the word was then going to spread pretty quickly. Keep in mind that the government had been flying agents and officers back and forth from the crash site in helicopters, and those helicopters were landing in El Cap Meadow. This kind of activity is not going to go unnoticed by the locals. So the fact is the locals had become aware of the crash and the cargo on board. The news was not the crash or the cargo, but that the government was abandoning the site and the weed was now unguarded and seemingly available to anyone who could get up there and pick it up. Now things had changed. The cargo of John Glisky's plane was not going to be seized by anyone he'd ever imagined, or really anyone could have imagined. The valley residents, either the employees or the resident climbers, that were often called valley rats or dirtbags, were not really considered to be overly ambitious. And given the location of the crash, the government was truly confident that no one would see this crash until they returned sometime in April or May. There were only about 20 climbers living in Camp Ford during that winter. This was a hardy group of people. They were willing to live in tents in the Sierras during the winter. Several of the inhabitants that winter were part of the previously discussed stone masters community of elite rock climbers. Never underestimate the tenacity, ambition, and fortitude of hardcore rock climbers. The haphazard sorties of the crash site began in earnest. Logic, barriers of... Distance, inclement weather, difficulties of trail and terrain have never really applied to climbers or, for that matter, any adventurer. Any weekend, you can see bicyclists riding uh, 100 miles in the rain or freezing temperatures. There's no reason to do that unless it's because you want to. Logic would offer an alternative to riding your bike in these conditions. But adventure athletes don't live or think like anyone else. Adventure athletes do things not because they make sense to others, but because they make sense to them. That's a way of thinking that doesn't exist in normal society. Adventurers live a different mindset, down to their complete devotion to adventure and the seeking of adventure. About a month after the storm that drove the feds away from the crash site, the first of the civilian visitors made their way to the small lake that went from unknown to infamous in a matter of a couple weeks. The stealth exodus from the valley began, first by a few on an exploratory mission, and when they returned to the valley with this information about the crash and what was on the shores, the excitement built, and the green rush was on. Of course, there were rumors about how much weed was on the plane and how much was available to those who hiked in, But no one was prepared for what they found or what they would have to do to get the marijuana off the mountain and down to civilization. Rumors about ownership of the plane and the cargo began to spread, and the anxiety followed. Some had heard that the plane was Colombian, meaning cartel enforcers would soon descend on the valley looking to collect either their property or their cash. Another rumor was that the plane was mafia-owned, and this was part of a large organized crime operation. Once again, the thought was there would soon be people coming to the valley and looking for their product, or the people who were holding it. Still another rumor spread that the plane was part of a government operation and was loaded not only with marijuana, but with cash and cocaine. The story then circulated that the government abandoned the site, but were watching it from a distance to see who would show up and salvage and claim the contraband. All the rumors seemed reasonable. And no one on the ground at the time knew about the syndicate known as Moda Magic and that the plane and the weed belonged to them and they were based in the U.S. There was no knowledge or even a care that the pilot John Glisky was more than a pilot for Moda Magic. He was a principal and possibly a partner in the smuggling operation. But who else was involved in Moda Magic and were they on their way to Yosemite to claim what belonged to them? And were the salvagers of the weed actually stealing from this smuggling organization? None of this, no matter how anxiety-producing, seemed to stop the flow of people headed to the crash site. There were a couple ways to get back to the site. Because of the light snowfall that season, the Glacier Point Road remained open all winter. The Glacier Point Road is usually closed for the season in late October and reopened in April. And During normal winters with heavy snowfall, the road to Glacier Point is popular with snowshoers and cross-country skiers. From the Glacier Point Road to the crash site is about a 20-mile overland hike covering some very rugged terrain. The advantage to this route is that most of the elevation gain was done driving the Glacier Point Road that went from the valley floor up to the rim of the valley, which is about 3,000 feet above the actual valley floor. Glacier Point was the site of the old firefall, which at one time was a primary tourist attraction and was even watched by John F. Kennedy in 1962. The firefalls ended in 1968, but for many, the firefall is what they remember most about visiting Yosemite Valley. Well, here I go again, spinning off on another tangent, because the the firefall didn't have anything to do with this story, but the firefall was really cool, and at the same time, I'm also glad they don't do them anymore. Just one more thing, in, in case you're out there listening and wonder what the heck is a firefall. So in a nutshell, what the firefall was, was that the rangers built a giant bonfire on the rim of the valley on what is called Glacier Point. At 9 p.m. every night, the bonfire was pushed over the edge, and as the fire and glowing embers fell down the 3,000 feet to the valley floor, the stream of glowing embers and flames looked like, uh, well, a firefall. But in 1968, George Herzog, who was the director of the National Park Service, said that an unnatural act like pushing fire over a cliff for tourists was more appropriate for a place like Disneyland than for Yosemite. So after a hundred years of the firefall, the last burning logs were pushed off a glacier point on January 25th, 1968. So after that little diversion about the firefall, we were talking about the hiking routes to the crash site. The alternative to the Glacier Point Road was hiking directly out of the valley up the Vernal and Nevada Falls Trail and into the backcountry covering about 26 miles. So the distance to the crash site either way you went was about the same. But many of the people who wanted to make the trek didn't own cars. And the sight of cars parked along a relatively deserted road in February and March would be kind of suspicious. Not only to the patrolling law enforcement officers, but Also to people who might be looking for the crash site and anyone that might be involved in taking what they believe belonged to them. As the first visitors surveyed the site, they found a very small amount of marijuana out in the forest. But it wasn't quite the situation they expected or had been told about. They learned that most of the marijuana that was promised to be lying on the shores of the lake was actually in the lake and under the ice. But these guys did have a good amount of weed to sample while they looked at the lake and thought about what they could do. Filling a pipe that they'd brought along, uh, they found the stuff was difficult to light, and when they did get it lit, it tasted awful. But after a couple hits, these guys were beyond high. The combination of high-grade weed and jet fuel gave this stuff a serious kick. The weed would later be nicknamed Lodestar Lightning, partly from the name of who they thought had built the plane, and partly from the huge flash that sometimes happened when you lit a joint that had a larger-than-normal amount of jet fuel infused into the leaves. Walking around on the ice on top of the lake, the guys were looking for this mythical weed. They soon saw shadows beneath the ice, and they figured those had to be the bundles, and they had to get to these bundles. But it was clear that tools would be needed, powerful tools, along with a little ingenuity. The next group that came in had beta from the previous visitors. They brought hammers, handsaws, power drills, long metal poles to poke around in the murky water. And one climber whose girlfriend's father worked in maintenance for the park service stole the old man's chainsaw and took it to the lake. So along with the chainsaw came gas, in tents and sleeping bags and camping supplies for several days. And that's a lot of weight to carry for 26 miles on mountain trails at high altitude. The method to free these bundles of weed went something like this. They'd walk around the ice and look for pieces of the bundle that were sticking up out of the ice that had been frozen around it. They'd use a bar to pierce the ice, but the ice was more than a foot thick. So the chainsaw was the fastest and most effective way to get to and free those bundles. When they got all the obvious bundles, they began to look for the shadows of the bundles that were trapped beneath the ice. They chainsawed open a few large holes in the ice. And with the poles, they reached down through the holes into the freezing water, fished around, and hooked these bundles and pulled them towards the holes. And then they muscled and wrestled these things out of the hole. Remember, these bundles were 40 pounds each dry. Saturated, these bundles weighed over 80 pounds. And these guys were going to have to carry these very large and awkward bundles on their backs in winter over rough terrain for more than 26 miles back to the valley. In a few days, the first bundles started to show up in the valley. The appearance of so much weed was startling, and the condition of it was even more shocking. Soaked in a lake water and jet fuel mixture, this stuff was going to have to be dried out before anything could be done with it. And now word was spreading, and there was a caravan of people going up the trail with large and heavy tools and bringing giant bundles of marijuana back down to the valley. Some people made only one trip and felt like they'd had enough to smoke a little, sell a little, and move on. Others made multiple trips and had larger plans in mind. Ideas of dream vacations, climbing trips, new cars, houses, and maybe be able to start a legitimate business if things worked out. And for some, it did work out. Back in the valley now, there were hundreds of pounds of wet weed that needed to be dried out. Tents became a valuable commodity as all available tents in Camp 4 and around the valley were filled with weed left to dry. Caves and remote and secret areas that climbers sometimes used as homes became covered in weed as it was laid out to dry. Being winter in the valley, it was relatively quiet. The law enforcement office was running a smaller crew and there was virtually no chance a random tourist would stumble upon a rocky open field or small meadow that was sheltered deep in the forest and covered in weed so confidence grew amongst the salvage teams no one seemed to be getting in trouble no one seemed to be getting arrested yet but that would change and no one had died or had been murdered yet but that would also change in our next episode we'll look into the mysterious death of one of the salvagers after he'd found cash and the legendary black book at the crash site and we'll tell the story of a teenager who came to Yosemite to devote his life to climbing, but found himself navigating gunplay, drug dealing, an AWOL soldier, and a life-changing decision. That's all next time. Thanks for listening. High Adventure Podcast is produced by Accidental Productions. Follow High Adventure on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you at the crash site.